Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslowski. I feel like taking things slow right now, but uh, I'll keep the conversation lively and let you decide how fast or slow to go with the show. This is episode number 92. What is up, you amazing human? Pardon me if I sound a little funky today. I bit my tongue recently, and it's rubbing up weird inside my mouth. Anyway, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking that right now, I'm thinking I get the pleasure of your time and attention once again. (laughs) That is seriously nifty, and I am grateful. While we're at it, we're just going to pour on the gratitude, just pour it nice and heavy on the top of everything for some special folks since, you know, once you get the uh, grateful train going, you know, don't stop. First, a special thanks to our show's patrons on Patreon. Those are the folks who make it possible to pour hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars into SASM. That's all possible with their help. You know what's coming? (laughs) You know what's coming, right? Awesome patrons. Sweet, sassy, molassy, you make me happy. As always, this episode is brought to you by my voice and Patreon supporters. I don't want sponsors. I just want you. So consider showing your support for me, this show, and our community at joelzeslowski.com slash Patreon. Now, here's an extra dose of love to Benny who sent me a recent email and said this. First of all, I want to thank you for your great podcast. I love the broad range of topics. It never fails to inspire me, get me thinking about new topics or old topics from a new angle and make me laugh. There are lots of exclamation points in that one. I love it. I'm an exclamation point kind of guy. Thank you, Benny. You and what you shared are tremendous. Uh, goodness, I have to say, if only I was together with Benny and all these other sweet peeps who listened to the show for a few days, just a few days ago, January 21st, 2016. Now, you're forgiven. If National Hugging Day was not on your calendar on January 21st, but consider adding it for 2017. I just recently found out about it last year, and I made up for it. I gave a lot of people a lot of hugs on National Hugging Day. I'm looking forward to doing it again. Anywho, here's something that applies only to me right now. I am grateful that I don't have to plan, design, configure, and launch a new website again for a long time. Uh, The feedback you and your fellow SASM listeners have given me on my still new website, joelzeslowski.com, you know, the value of simple thing, it's gone. It's kind of sad, but it's kind of cool at the same time. Uh, The feedback has just been wunderbar. Podcast downloads are up. More people are accepting my invitation to get in on my email subscribing-only tools. (sighs) I feel like the universe is just a touch, just a touch funkier and groovier now. You feeling it too? I hope so. Speaking of those personal websites, my guest for this episode has one, but he would probably prefer the domain slow.com if he could get it. Yes, I had the pleasure of chatting with at least as far as I know, the world's only ambassador of slow. It's Carl Onore, who his bona fides, I'll tell you about all in a moment, but he is a certified, generous, persuasive, and candid fella in my book. 
man, we covered a whole lot of ground on things like how to avoid social obesity and just gorge on meaningful connections instead, who wins in the parenting race between the tortoise and the hare, how to make your smartphone your servant instead of your master, so much more. Let's hit it, huh? Here we go. Wow, I've been known to talk fast and loud when I get excited, so I promise to be mindful of that because I am plenty stoked right now. That's because my guest for this episode is Carl Onore, an award-winning writer and best-selling author of books like In Praise of Slowness. He's a global ambassador for just about all things slow, slow parenting, slow travel, slow pretty much whatever you got, and he actively gets to practice what it means to be slow because he's often on the move, sometimes with or without his two kids and wife in London. Uh, I also hear that he can carve up the ice in some skates and has a blazing backhand smash on the squash cart, though. Who knows whether we'll get to that. Regardless, welcome to the show, Carl. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Let's start where we always start a conversation on Smart and Simple Matters with something I call the seeds of awesomeness. I want to help people understand how you came to be the person you are today. So can you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth or maybe even one or two experiences you had growing up that's had a big impact on you? Two spring to mind. The the first ties in directly with fast and slow which is what all my working life has been about in the last 10 years. And that is that I grew up in a family where my mom and dad were, were like a tortoise in the hare. My, my, my mother has always been very fast, very busy, always on. And, and my dad has been much more, although very hardworking and, and high achieving, has tended to have a slower rhythm and move to a, a more gentle tempo. And so I guess I grew up having those two models in front of me, role models to to work out how I was going to live my life. And I think in the early part of my life, I attached myself to my mother's model. <laughs> and I was just a, a road runner. Every moment of my day was a race against the clock. And I was very much, I think, my my, my mother's uh, my mother's son. And then, of course, I had a wake-up call and realized that I was racing through my life instead of living it and began then to import some of the slowness from my father. And in a way, I think I've ended up sort of halfway between the two understanding that there are times to be fast and times to be slow and that there are lots of different paces and rhythms in between which is a neat summary of the slow philosophy that uh, it's not about doing everything very slowly that would be absurd i'm not an extremist of slowness (laughs) or a fundamentalist for that matter i love speed you mentioned my squash backhand i like a bit of hockey as well (laughs) i like fast but uh, you know faster isn't always better and i think that's one of the lessons i've learned and it's something i think was always playing in the back of my mind from my childhood, having those two different styles in the home. So that, that would be one. Can, can I ask you about that real quick before sure. we get to number two? Have you explored why you assumed some of the attributes of your mother instead of your father? Why fast became your default as a child, as opposed to taking more of your influence from your father, at least at a young age? I, I have turned that over in my mind and I'm, I, you know, I'd only really be guessing. You can never know for sure. I suppose one answer to that question is that some people, and I think this is the tr- that is in fact the case, that people are all born with their own natural metronome. Some people are born natural tortoises. Some people are born natural hares. And you do often see that in couples, that very often a fast person gets together with a slow person. And at the, at the beginning, it's it's fun. It's You're sparking off each other. It, it's opposites attract, that old cliche. 
and it works. And then later on, the, the, the friction kicks in because the fast person feels frustrated by the slowness of the other person and the slow person feels irked by the impatience and speed of the other one. So I, I sort of saw that with my own parents. And in fact, that's happened in my own life where my wife is, is, is naturally a slower person. And I've, I think I was just born naturally a quick person. So when I looked at those two models, my mother and father, the natural place for me to gravitate was towards the faster of the two because that's where I was DNA-wise. I think I was probably hardwired to be in that that hair mode, if you like. Okay, cool. Well, so, so number two, you, there was another thing that you wanted to mention. Yeah, I took a year out to go, uh, this was after university, after, after university, to live in Brazil where I work with street children. And that was an extraordinary experience. It was in Brazil. So these are kids who are living the most remarkable misery and violence and just a kind of darkness in technicolor. And it was a real eye-opener for me as as someone coming from a comfortable, middle-class, safe childhood in Western Canada to be confronted by this these horrors. Uh, and it really woke me up to what I want to do in my life, I think, which was to to save the world, essentially. And that's really why I went into journalism to begin with, which was to use my pen and later my laptop to to write about what was going on in the world in order to change people's behavior, their way of thinking, and to, to, to make the world a better place. And I suppose that's always been what gets me up in the morning is feeling that at the end of the day, I've done something or at least tried to do something to make the world a better place than it was when I got up that same day. And although I first found myself channeling that urge and that instinct into journalism, later on it moved towards what I'm doing now, which was trying to tackle the virus of hurry and the cult of speed and the pressure to do everything faster and faster and to try and help people reconnect with their inner tortoise, if you like, to bring back the art of slowness and to to make it okay for people to put on the brakes so that we can all not only live better lives, but actually you know, create a better world at the same time. Yeah. Well, oh, that helps. I'm, I'm curious, although maybe we don't need to go there, why Brazil and why with street children and why after university? Was this part of your entry into the world of journalism or this was just completely independent where you wanted to have a service-oriented life for a year after university because you weren't quite sure what to shift from or shift into? It was, it was, quite, it was pretty random, actually, the Brazil part of it because I was... It was the first time I went there, actually. I went as a participant in an exchange called Canada World Youth, and it pairs up young Canadians with young people in the developing world and works at that time, I think, with 35 or 40 developing world countries. And in that time, and the first time I went was halfway between, was between second and third year university or college. And I just felt that I'd got into university at the age of 17 and a half, I had never really stopped and thought about why I was there, or what I really wanted to do. And I just wanted to push pause. And so I decided to take a year out and counter world youth seemed like a good vehicle for going out and exploring the world and getting to grips with who I was and how I might fit into that world. And so I signed up for Canada world youth. And at the time, my real interest lay in Africa. I was desperate to go to an African country and I put my top three or five choices, all African countries, and they gave me Brazil. Hmm. So it was one of those things that just came out of out of nowhere. And so I found myself doing the exchange program in Brazil, fell in love with Brazil and, and have since carried on. I went back and worked as a journalist, both in Brazil and then in Argentina for three years. You know, I, I do a lot of work in, in Latin America now. So Latin America has become an incredibly close and important part of my, my life, but it really came to me completely randomly, like, like the spin of a wheel. Uh, and so I guess that I did the Canada World Youth thing between second and third year university. Then after graduation, I knew I needed to go back on my own 
terms outside of program and do my own thing. And that's when I went back to uh, first to work in an orphanage where I uncovered all kinds of corruption and decided that wasn't where I wanted to be. And then found myself stumbling into working with street kids. Hmm. Wow, that's quite the origin story. All because you hit the pause button. So something in your body, even though your metronome was going tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock really fast, something said, whoa, whoa, I need to hold on for a second here. And actually, so more recently in your life, this you, you detail this great at, in the opening part of In Praise with Slowness, the one-minute bedtime story revelation that you had at the airport. I can't have a conversation with you without at least letting you tell people who are unfamiliar with you and your work and, and all things slow. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about this, uh, sure. this catalytic moment where you decided, I really need to slow down. Yeah. And it was, it was really was that moment. I, at this point, well, I was probably in my, I guess I was in my early thirties. My, I had my first child and I was reading bedtime stories and I just couldn't slow down at the end of the day. So I would go into his room, sit on his bed one foot on the floor, and I would speed read Snow White, <laughs> skipping lines, paragraphs, entire pages. I, I became an expert in what I dubbed the multiple page turn technique. I, I don't know if you've... I am guilty of that. But, I'll admit but it. I think any parent out there is probably wincing in recognition. You know, we've all been there. Those stories, they feel so slow, and we want to get through them quickly. But of course, our children know them inside out. So my son would always catch me. He'd say, you know, Daddy, why are there only three dwarves in the story? <laughs> what happened to Grumpy? You know? <laughs> And this horrifying, lamentable state of affairs went on for quite some time, I'm ashamed to say, until I found myself skimming a newspaper article with time-saving tips for fast people like me to go even faster. And one of those tips mentioned a book called The One-Minute Bedtime Story. So Snow White, Brothers Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen, all those glorious children's stories boiled down to 60-second chunks. And I remember reading that, and my first reaction was, hallelujah, you know, what – what a great idea. I need to get that book now. I need to get it from Amazon drone delivery, right? But, but thankfully, I had a second reaction, very different from the first light bulb over the head moment. I suddenly thought, what was it come to this? Really? Am I really in such a hurry? I'm prepared to fob off my son with a soundbite at the end of the day. And it was one of those moments, those rare moments, I think, of searing epiphany when you suddenly see yourself in sharp relief from the side. And what I saw there was it was ugly and it was unedifying. It was just wrong. And I realized that I had lost my bearings. I'd lost my compass and that I, I needed to slow down. And that was, that really was the starting point for investigating not only my own addiction to speed, but of course, as a journalist and a writer trying to embed that in a bigger story, a bigger narrative. So I set off around the world in investigating and researching our obsession with, with quick and fast and, came back with good news, which is that uh, wherever you go now, more and more people are doing the unthinkable. They're slowing down. You know, they're putting on the brakes and finding that contrary to what conventional wisdom tells us, which is that if you slow down, you're boring, you're stupid, you're lazy, you're unproductive, you're roadkill, that the opposite turns out to be true, that by slowing down judiciously at the right moments, people find that they eat better, make love better, raise their kids better, think better, work better, create better. They live better. And this rising thrust or tide of deceleration that you find everywhere now around the world has a name. People call it the slow movement. And I guess mm -hmm. almost by accident or certainly not by design, I've ended up being a kind of um, ambassador or spokesman for it. And, and now that's become my, my mission in life, I suppose, is to go around and help people put on the brakes. 
Yeah, well, you, from my perspective, you have a very clear compass now from an outsider's view. And that word slow, you're right. It, it can be an awfully loaded word. And it still is. Most of the people when they talk about, well, he's slow or slow thinking. And, and a lot of the words that I had growing up when somebody was described as slow, that was a pretty big insult. But I know over the last decade, since you've assumed your ambassadorship, I figured no one's given it to you, but you've embraced it, correct? <laughs> it's just kind of come with the territory, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the world has bestowed upon you ambassador of slow. That's kind of cool. You have to teach me how to get something cool like that someday. <laughs> Sounds but, like a Star Wars character, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. slow now enters the <laughs> in hologram form. Well, you've been doing so much in the world of slow over the past decade since you published In Praise of Slowness. You probably have some, well, I, I know you have some great insight. Uh, other than, we don't necessarily need a history lesson. I'll refer people to the introduction in chapter one of your book if they want a, a history lesson in terms of how did we get here? How did we get from a, at least a Western culture perspective to the point where everything's just go, go, go? be productive, you know, do everything as fast as possible and just value quantity over quality. A lot of people are still stuck in fast forward. And these days, even with the influences of folks like you and a number of other people who are doing great work out there, do you have a, are there two or three common ways that you see where people just get permanently stuck in this fast forward mode? Uh, Ways as in, do you mean reasons why? Well, there has to be, I think the default, at least, so here in the Midwest of the U.S. growing up, my default was pretty fast. That was just, my parents didn't necessarily raise me that way, but in school, my friends were all that way, being in a lot of sports, playing video games, although I'm sitting and not actively moving. They're all fast-paced video games with quick shifts and got to be here and you have to be reactive all the time. There's no point in, although I could hit the pause button, <laughs> the pause button did not get nearly as much use as the rest of the buttons on my video game controller. So I'm just, I'm kind of curious. For me, it almost seemed like uh, the default from a cultural perspective. I didn't opt into it. It just kind of happened. But there has to be a way, a, a common method that people kind of get indoctrinated to this or get pushed into it by their parents or by their surrounding environment. Do you have an understanding of a couple of the key factors, I guess I should say? That yeah. You put your finger on it there with when you mentioned the word parents or parenting, because I think that nowadays we're marinating our children from the moment they come out of the womb in this culture of speed and busyness and distraction and stimulation and multitasking. I mean, kids come out of the womb now and they just hit the ground running, don't they? With baby Einstein DVDs, Mandarin lessons in the crib, you know, baby goes pro sports clinics, sign language classes for baby. I mean, it's just a barrage from the moment they come out into the world. And I think people get accustomed to a certain level of stimulation. And this is part of the problem now is that I think our, I use the word addiction to speed advisedly because I think it has become more than just a cultural or psychological addiction. It's almost a chemical addiction that we are so accustomed to things moving fast, to lots of stimulation, to multiple stimuli coming from various different angles at the same time, that when you take that away from us, we don't rejoice, put our feet up and our hands behind our back of our head and, and swing in the hammock and say, whew, you know, it's time to have a rest. We panic. You know, we fidget. We think, where's you know, I, 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 I need some more. Where's my next fix of excitement and stimulation coming from? And in fact, just one example I came across recently is that I think it was in a German university. They ran a test with 
students' use of smartphones, and they took their smartphones off them for a week and wired them up to all kinds of gadgets and to do all the metrics and see what kind of physical, physiological reaction they would have to having the smartphone taken away. And they found that they had the same reactions as heroin addicts have when they go into withdrawal symptoms from not having their heroin fix. You know, they had elevated, uh, you know, heartbeats, uh, sweaty palms, they couldn't focus, all, all these things. And I think that's a metaphor for what we, where we are now, is that right from the moment children come out into the world, they're in a world where the metronome is set at maximum, you know, or it's that old spinal tap thing that the, the speed control is set at 11, right, <laughs> instead of 10. And I think because we find ourselves bathing them in that from the very start, it becomes hard to even just physically to unhook from it because it's it becomes the norm. But then, of course, that's reinforced by all of the cultural pressures to carry on pushing down on the gas pedal. You alluded to it a little bit earlier, this idea of slow being a dirty word or a four-letter word in our culture. I think one of the main obstacles to slowing down is the taboo that exists in our culture against the very idea of slowness, that slow really is a, a byword for lazy, stupid, torpid, all those things nobody wants to be. And that means that even when we yearn to slow down, even when we can feel in our bones that it would be good for us to put on the brakes, we don't do it. And we don't do it because we feel afraid, we feel guilty, we feel ashamed, uh, or we just have lost the habit. And, and I think a lot of that is what's holding people back now. Because wherever you go around the world now, you open the conversation with a taxi driver, a nurse, uh, a school teacher, uh, someone in the street selling fruit, uh, a, a business person, an entrepreneur, and you say, you know, how fast, we'll talk to them about pace of life, and they all say the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm racing the clock, I'm busy all the time, I, I'd love to slow down. But then the next sentence out of their mouth, mouth is always, I either don't know how or I can't. And that's really, I guess, what I'm dedicating my work to do is to break through that taboo and say, you know what, you can and you must because you're going to live a better life and be a better version of yourself if you're able to change gears. You know, know when to go fast and when to go slow rather than just always having one speed and for that speed to be turbo. Well, that's good that people are at least acknowledging that they want something other than fast and they want something other than busy. Because a lot of people that I talk to right now, they're proud of their busyness. They're proud of their pace of life. They're proud of the fact that they're stressed out of their mind every single day because they're trying to watch five hours of TV and do 10 hours of work and also be a parent and also do this hobby on the side. And oh, by the way, where's the time for sleep and, all, and eating good food? Uh, so... Uh, that's great that people are are asking that second question is i don't i don't like this how do i change what do i do first and you mentioned smartphones earlier this study that you heard out of germany i don't necessarily think that it's the smartphone itself because i have a smartphone you probably have a smartphone too right yeah yeah it's what we're doing with it Uh, Mm -hmm. for me i use my smartphone mostly to meditate I spend the majority of my time, I'm not, I'm not actually on my smartphone, I just use an app on my smartphone called Insight Timer to meditate, which is wonderful. And that's my primary time with my smartphone during the day. So it's the relationship that I have with that. And as far as the makers, you know, let me back up for a second. There are a number of people, there are a number of influences that determine how fast we go and people who are setting the pace for our life like folks in Silicon Valley. We're talking about smartphones. Apple, for example. But a lot of those people, Apple and Google, they are starting to become champions of meditation or Mm -hmm. mindfulness. 
have you, what else have you seen? Uh, is there research or personal experiences that you've had where you see this shift in go, 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 busy, busy, busy all the time to companies, to parents saying, hey, you know what? Actually, slow down and here are some ways how. Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, just let me, I'm going to just rewind a moment and pick up your point about the smartphone first before delving into that uh, question you've just put for me. Uh, yet, I, I, I want to make it clear up front that I am not a Luddite, right? I love the technology. I have all the gadgets. I'm talking to you through a MacBook. I have an iPhone 6. You know, they are great and they can help us do amazing things and be very productive and they can help us do slow things as well, like meditate and and, and forge deep connections with people if we use them right. But that's the key is, is how to use them. And the trouble is that these gadgets, they all have a little red button that means off. And when we don't use that button, and, and the problem is that we don't, that the gadgets can start to backfire on us. So it's really about trying to create a healthier relationship around technology. And that is a big part of this slow revolution or slow culture quake, or whether you call it the slow technology movement or slow gadgets or whatever you label or etiquette you want to ha- ha- hang on it. That's what it comes down to is using those gadgets wisely so that we don't become enslaved to them, but that we are able to use them in order to live better and live more fully. And I'm completely optimistic. I think we can do that. And there are many examples of how that's happening. You cited one there just yourself using using your phone for for meditation. So I'll put that to one side and come back to your more recent question, which is about what do I see? I tell you, I, I, I've been on this war path, if you like, for slowness for 10 years. And I've seen the tectonic plates shape shift amazingly and hugely. Uh, you know, when I first came out saying, you know, s- s- slowness is good, slow has a role to play in the 21st century, I, I, you know, I felt like a, a voice in the wilderness and, and either ignored or people saying, well, what does this slow mean? We can't slow down. Now it seems to me to be something completely mainstream. And you mentioned the boom of meditation and mindfulness programs in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is just the tip of the iceberg. You go to Wall Street and they're doing the same thing there. Uh, The fastest people in the world are the ones now increasingly saying, this is too fast. I have no time to recharge my batteries, to reflect, to think deeply. I'm just skimming the surface. I'm not living fully. I'm not working as well. I'm not as creative or as inventive. So the fact we got to the stage even now where the fastest people in the world, the people who used to hang their self-worth on how busy they were and how quick they were are increasingly saying, you know what, I'm going to be better if I shift gears sometimes, if I go slowly. So you talked about the big companies, and I would echo it, Silicon Valley, but you find companies in all sectors of the global economy, including the fastest moving sectors, saying to their staff, you know, slow down, take, go to this quiet room, sit there and listen to whale music or uh, get a massage or just go for a walk or, or meditate and have that gear change, have that slow moment to come back afterwards, refreshed, recharged and thinking more creatively and more accurately. Uh, just another example from Silicon Valley, you're finding now parents in Silicon Valley, what are they doing with their own children? Whether increasingly they're not giving them iPads and iPhones. I mean, Steve Jobs did not give his children iPhones or iPads. He sold, I don't know how many hundreds of millions to the rest of us, but his own kids, he didn't want them sitting in front of a screen. He wanted them out outside playing with sticks, using their imagination, that kind of slow, tactile, unmediated play uh, that is the cornerstone of a childhood worthy of the name. You're finding more and more Silicon Valley parents buying into that and saying, you know what, I want my child to have a slow childhood. So sending their kids, for instance, to Montessori schools where there, where play is very important, where screens are not constantly waved in their faces and so on. So you, wherever you look, you'll find people sending that same message. 
Uh, he talked about children. Uh, another example, Roger Federer, perhaps the greatest tennis player ever to walk the earth, recently came out and said he's got he's got his own kids now. And he said, the one thing I am not going to be with my own children is a pushy parent <laughs> because he spent so many years on the circuit watching impatient, high octane, overly pressured parents burning out their own children. And he's saying, you know, of course, my children, if they want to take up tennis, I'll be right behind them. They're going to have to work hard to do it. But but there's a difference between you know, working hard and working yourself to the bone, you know, going too fast. And again, it's that idea of slowing down, giving people space, time to find their own path, to explore the world on their own terms, children especially, but, but grown-ups as well. So, I mean, there are many other examples. I, I could just oh, throw yeah. one. Oh, oh, we're going to talk sure. about them. <laughs> sure. There's, there's so many different slices of slow. I mean, I know you've covered slow cities and slow food and slow sex, slow parenting. So on that topic, it's interesting that you mentioned Roger Federer and the, the speed at which that tennis ball just flies off his rocket, racket. I mean, talk about a blazing backhand. Jeez. Uh, I recently heard you say in an interview on ABC Australia Sunday Profile that we've turned parenting into a cross between competitive sport and product development. So here's Roger Federer, who's clearly in a competitive sport, who's saying, I don't want my children to grow up in that competitive environment. I'm not trying to cultivate them to become this product, this tennis prodigy, which I can trot out in front of everybody else. You have a whole book, which I haven't read yet, called Under Pressure, about slow parenting. What, what did you, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you're much more than in praise of slowness. I think that and your TED Talk are probably the two primary ways that people have heard your name. But there's so much more that you could cover. As far as slow parenting goes, whether it's related to under pressure or just in general, do you have a couple of key points where a frustrated, stressed out, I have no idea where to start kind of parent, what would you recommend to them to just start shifting the needle back down in their life and in their children's life? Yeah. Uh, Well, I suppose the first thing is to is to clear some time that is unscheduled. Because I think this is what, and I see this, I I feel the pressures in my own life, and I certainly see this all around me in the work I do. I've been making TV shows, helping families slow down as well. So I see this everywhere around the world. The parents, even without even wanting it, find themselves just scheduled up to the eyeballs. Every moment feels like it has to be uh, a measurable outcome the type of moment or activity that you could put on a CV, right, or a resume. And what happens when we get into that way of thinking is that we squeeze out those unscheduled, slower, unstructured, freer moments, which are actually immensely enriching and are are really all about building the best um, brains and bodies for our children. But we we kind of don't allow those moments to happen. And and I'm referring to moments like just opening up the back door and kicking your kids outside and just letting them get on with messing around in the garden, right? You know, in nature, in the original classroom, because we're always stepping in and trying to make play better, make it faster, make it more impressive so it can go on a Harvard application or a resume. And I think a big first step for all families is to stop, just push pause for a moment, look at what you're doing schedule-wise, work out what's really, really important, put it in, let's say, list of most important you think for your children and yourselves as a family together, to least important, and then maybe cut two or three things at the bottom of that list just to free up time that is not scheduled, that is not programmed, that is not about measuring and metrics and, 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 and competition that can end up on, a, on an Ivy League application and allow that t- oxygen to 
feed into the fa- into family life. So you get to those moments when you've reclaimed some time and you just sometimes you just let the children play. Maybe you bake a bake something together, you go for a bike ride, or you just have a conversation, or you play Monopoly or or whatever it is. All those moments that we find ourselves squeezing in in the Christmas holidays or because every the rest of the year is so busy. Those moments need to be exi- no need to exist throughout the year, throughout the week and on in every day. So I think an important thing is to do less. Let's put it in two words. Do less, you know, mm-hmm. cut, drop something. Uh, so that'd be a first suggestion. And a second has to come, has to do with, um, let's cycle back to technology. The number of hours that our children are spending in front of screens now is just off the charts. And I think most of us can feel in the same way as when our kids are eating too much candy. We just sort of know it. Right? We haven't counted how much candy they're taking, but we just feel it. We know that they're spending too much time in front of screens. So I think it's hard because kids get addicted. They don't like to have the screen turned off. But I think as parents, you need to take the unpopularity hit and start rethinking how and when people are plugged into their gadgets. And that includes parents as well, right? Because you can't force your kids off your gadgets while you're looking at your your iPhone. You've got to be part of that change as well. So I think it's important for a family to uh, ring fence off, to set aside certain times of the day when everybody's off their gadgets and maybe set aside one room in the house which never has gadgets that becomes gadget free a place just to go and be together to talk to do stuff that doesn't involve electronic stimulation and distraction and to start getting some kind of balance with technology so those would be the two starting points that i would suggest to people uh, cutting back on ac- structured activities and uh, rolling back the technology juggernaut well, you've talked about this before, gadget-free zones for kids. Gadget-free time is one thing, but just having that sacred space in your house where glowing screens don't enter into them or anything that beeps, buzzes, it's just free. Do you still have that with your two kids? It's hard because we live in, a, in, a, in London, right? And so if you know anything about London houses, they're not that big, right? Yeah. So there are this house. And you've got teenagers as well, which I would imagine the older friends are probably on their gadgets all the time. So is that something that you did and now no longer do? Not because it's not important, but just because it's impractical? No, we, we've done, we're different now. We, for the first 11 years of our children's lives, they didn't really have, I mean, they were allowed to watch a bit of television, but they weren't, we didn't have any video games. We, had, we still don't have iPads, um, nothing like that. So they at least had that base, uh, that those first early years of being able to use their imagination, fall back on their own devices. They, they don't get bored in that way that I think kids who are constantly spoon-fed electronic stimulation are more prone to getting bored because they just not they don't know how to fill time, right? Because time is always being filled for them by apps and, and video games. So at least they had that base. But of course, now that they're teenagers, they've they're getting into the whole kind of social media thing. So we're, we're all, we're having a lot of conversations about, you know, how that's going to look now in our home, but we do still have pretty strict limits. You know, nobody brings out a phone. We don't do any stuff in the kitchen. For instance, nobody ever get, you you know, you don't bring out your phone at the dinner table or the kitchen table ever. Um, Upstairs, the, the top room in the house, which is our bedroom tends to be pretty much screen free. And it's the place where we go up and read, still read stories or read together or have conversations. So, in the parameters of what we have in a London house, so we're, we're still trying to walk that talk, definitely. Mm-hmm. Wow, we've talked a lot about slow parenting, which you and I are both parents. And I've actually, so Kim John Payne, who I had on in a previous episode, uh, talked all about simplicity parenting, which in a lot of ways is just slow parenting. These, these terms that we're using, I won't say that they're interchangeable, but a lot of us are trying to get to the same place. 
which is a more meaningful existence, a more connected existence, a more community-oriented existence. And it's cool to hear how you've explored that and what you've seen other people do. I'm, I'm kind of curious. There's so many different slices of slowness right now. What's your favorite? What are you just most stoked about in the world of slow? Mm-hmm. Well, I've got to say, as a, as a natural foodie, you know, I, slow food is the original slow slow movement. I, I still have a lot of time for slow food. Uh, I, I, I just think food is such a transcendent place to start for slowing down. We all understand the, the glories of eating together, breaking bread together, that sens- sensory, sensual pleasure of eating good food, well-made. I, I still get very excited about what's happening in the world of food. But but there are, as you say, so many other micro-movements and strands, and, and, and many of them are getting my spirits up as well. I, I, there's a lot of talk in, in the world of travel now, slow travel. Uh, you know, we've gone through this phase of cheap airlines, cheap flights, people flying all over the place, especially in Europe, you know, you fly to Barcelona for lunch and that. But there's now very much a counter trend going on under the rubric of slow as people start to reclaim the joy of the journey, not just focusing on getting to the place as fast as possible. And then when they get to the place, actually trying to insert themselves and plug into the local culture. Because one of the things we lose and sacrifice on the altar of speed is the fine grain of a place, the texture, the nuances, the unique details of somewhere that makes that place stand out from anywhere else. Because when we travel fast, we end up just skimming the surface and we end up having a very globalized, uniform experience of the world. So you find yourself you go to that place in Barcelona and you're in a restaurant that's very like the one you could have eaten in London. You're sleeping in a hotel. You wake up in the morning. It could be Toronto. could be Tokyo. You know, everything starts to feel the same. But there's now, as I say, under this the, the, the umbrella term of slow travel, people looking for ways to get away from that samey, uniformized, uh, very fast food, if you like, approach to travel and, and getting down into the, 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 the fine grain of the place. So I even think that Airbnb, which of course is a huge, uh, you know, unicorn behemoth in the in the in the online world and a big successful company i think the fact that airbnb is thriving is part of that slow travel thing because i've used airbnb all the time and one of the things i like most about it is it does plug me into local communities i stay in people's apartments uh i'm you know i'm that you go down shop in the local market you get to, you off i've got to know the neighbors on occasion very different from staying in a hotel uh, so i think that there are lots of these changes that are going on that uh, show that people are looking to to travel more slowly and to travel better. And, and that's one of the areas that I like very much um, as well. I, I'm also excited by the fact that the fashion world, there's a slow fashion movement too. And you think, well, in the same way as technology, the slow technology movement, your first reaction is often, what? How can that be? That sounds like an oxymoron. Technology is so fast. How can you have a slow email movement? It sounds absurd. <laughs> But, but there is, you know, there is a movement because people are using it with a slow spirit, the technology. And the same thing is happening in fashion because, of course, we think of fashion as being very fast. Everything, especially women's fashion, things coming, you know, season ahead. It's you wear this skirt, then the hem goes down. You've got to get rid of it. That's still there, of course. But there's now, again, a, a wide and growing and deepening countercurrent of slow fashion as young designers look for ways to make pieces that have a story behind them that don't ravage the environment but are ethically sourced uh, that uh, that are going to last that aren't just made for next season but are made forever you know so there's a big big push now especially among young designers to bring that slow ethos into the world of fashion i find that thrilling because again it's so counterintuitive if you think fashion that's got to be the hardest nut to crack when it comes to slowness but there it's happening too hmm. well i'm not a fashionable guy at least not from a closed perspective. Never have been, probably never will. I imagine a number of people are, though, 
do you have a place, whether it's a website or some physical place where people could go to explore a little bit more of this world of slow fashion? Uh, well, I tell you, my, my own website's a really good place for that because I've, I've, on my links page, my website is carlonore.com. Oh, yes, it is. If you go through my links site, I've got a lot of links to different slow fashion uh, websites or companies that are building, um, putting together products that are, are very much slower. The one that I like very much is a youngish guy here in London who's created a, the, the world's first eco shoes, right? Completely recyclable, biodegradable, but, but wonderful, funky super comfortable shoes to wear called Pozu. Uh, and and he's, he, he's set it up. So I think it was three or four years ago. And now it's just starting to take off. He's done a Kickstarter campaign that within two weeks uh, re- reached all its funding. Uh, his shoes are featuring in a Hollywood film. He teamed up with Timberland. You know, it's, it's, and, and he's been stuck to stubbornly, obstinately even to his, his way of doing things, which is profoundly slow and, and it's paying off, you know? And, and so that's one I love very much. I have myself, couple of pairs of pozu shoes po uh, hyphen zu which i guess i think means pause in japanese if i'm not uh, getting my my backstories wrong here it's something well that's long. okay i'll link all these things that you're talking about i'll link to them in the show notes and i'll let people explore and maybe even i can define a couple of things there as well i want to just briefly go back to so the intersection of slow food and slow travel because mm-hmm. i don't know how you could travel slowly without also taking your meals slowly my wife and i we just got back from a 10-year wedding anniversary in isla mujeres which is an island off of cancun for six days uh, that to us was slow travel that to us, spending two and a half hours for all of our meals, no watches, no wondering, why haven't they brought our water out yet? It didn't matter. We were just existing there. I'm curious from your perspective, you mentioned Barcelona, which I've been to as well, and oh my goodness. And you were kind of joking about how people fly in for lunch in Barcelona. I don't know that I would do that, but I kind of get it. The place is just magical. So can you walk us through, you're pretty familiar with Barcelona as well. Can you walk us through a day in the life of a slow traveler in Barcelona? How would you play it? Oh, in Barcelona. That's an interesting mind exercise. Um, You can pick a different city if you like, if you're more familiar with something. I love Barcelona, and I've spent a lot of slow time there. Another city I like very much is Amsterdam which is so, is so cyclable everywhere you bicycle everything. I think mean, there's a lot of good slow there. Uh, I guess, I mean, just you could take a generic European city, but you, you said Barcelona. I suppose, I guess you'd start off the morning, you'd be staying somewhere that maybe wasn't a hotel or, or at least a hotel that had a lot of local character to it. But I would personally be staying in an Airbnb as I did last time in Barcelona, which was in um, one of the central barrios, one of the central neighborhoods. I'd already met because I had a bit of problem with the key, one of the neighbors um, on the landing, uh, and she had sort of suggested a couple of places to go for breakfast in the morning. So I got up. I didn't have an alarm set. I, I did actually have a free day. So I got up when I got up. I didn't have a schedule, really particular things to see. I had two or three uh, sites and, and a museum that I wanted to go to. But again, it wasn't tightly scheduled. I got up. I went down. I picked up a newspaper, and I, I thought to myself, well, I'll spend you know 20 minutes having my breakfast and reading the paper. I, I ended up being there for about 90 minutes because the paper was so interesting and I just enjoyed watching people. And I didn't feel even a scintilla of guilt or shame at not getting on to the next thing really quickly or living up to the lofty standards of my to-do list. I just I just enjoyed the moment. And so I, was, I guess I'd, I'd be there. That's how I would start my day would be with a long, leisurely breakfast and then walk, you know, just walk. I think that's one of the glories, especially of European old world cities, is that they're not built for cars. They're built for human beings. And there's something about walking, the very act of walking itself that is slow and slowing because you cannot, you can't walk too fast, can you? As soon as you start 
start to walk too fast or even too slow, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? We all know that. If you're walking with somebody who's quicker than you, it's a bit uncomfortable. You're not, you're not in a groove. As soon as you find your own speed, and of course that, again, is the essence of the slow philosophy, to do things at the right pace for you, your speed, your tempo. Uh, then you just feel like you're swimming. You know, you're just fluid and you're you're alive and in touch with yourself. And I think walking is such a delicious way to do that. So I think a big part of um, going around a city for me is, is walking. And also serendipity. I know nowadays it's very tempting. I do it myself before you go to a place to get on TripAdvisor, to look at all the best restaurants, to map out your plan. But I think that robs us of the joy of discovery, right? Because you've already discovered everything in a superficial way before you even get there. And so many of the best things that have happened to me in Barcelona and elsewhere have been moments that I've just stumbled across that were not planned, that I would never have found on TripAdvisor. Uh, Or if I had, I wouldn't have enjoyed them in the same way just because I was walking around with a map maybe in one hand, but not looking at my phone and following whatever Google Maps is telling me, turn left, turn right, walk across, you know, just to go with... I see a square that looks attractive to me and I'll just walk through it. And then maybe I'll, I know roughly I'm going that way. I'll go out that side of the square because it's an interesting, you know, artisanal shop on the corner or whatever. And I think sort of going with the flow is a big part of uh, unraveling and making the most of a city like Barcelona or a city like anywhere, really, to be honest. Yeah. Well, you can bring it. Just to finish that thought, uh, a big part of any visit, slow travel visit, certainly for me in any city is always eating and, and taking the time to, 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 to find somewhere really good to eat and, and just you know sink into it and give it the time it deserves. Are you eating by yourself or you're trying to find another local to sit down with and have a conversation? I do both. Uh, I, 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 because I travel a lot for work, I do often find myself alone. And sometimes I, I, I've, I've come to enjoy that, even though I'm quite a gregarious person. I do enjoy moments of solitude. And you know I, I'll often take a novel and just and read a book, but often I'll just close the book and focus on what I'm eating, really enjoy the food and just people watch. There's, there's something so universally pleasing about sitting at a cafe or a table and just watching other people go about their lives, listening in, feeling conversations washing over you, noticing the way the, 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 the setting sun casts its light differently across the, the, the coffee counter as your meal progresses. All those little details hmm. that give texture and meaning to a moment and, and, and make the moment sing, those happen when you take away all that other stimulation. And I, I, I love to eat with people as well. And so I, I do have another approach to eating abroad, which is to, because I, you know, I have a presence on social media, I'll, I'll, I will sort of sometimes say I'm going to be in this place and people say, oh, do you want to meet up or we could get together with these people. So I, I do find myself also dining with locals. So I try and get a balance between the two because I do think there's a lot to be said for for solitude. And I think the art of being alone is is a little bit a lost art nowadays, because it's so hard to be alone and so tempting not to be with all of these gadgets. You know, even just 15 years ago, you walked out of your house, and you did have a kind of solitude imposed on you, didn't you? Because you were just on your own until you bumped into another human being in this physical space. But now you walk out of your house and the the phone is in your pocket. You can be connected to instantly to thousands of people on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat. And I think because we are naturally hardwired to seek out social connections, we end up just gorging on those social connections. In the same way as we're hardwired from having been life on the savanna, feast and famine, you know, when there was no food, we, we starved it out. And then when there was food, we would gorge on it. I think that you come into a – that works in that – 
era of feast and famine and scarcity, but you come into a world of abundance like we live in now, and what does that lead to? It leads to obesity because we still have the same instinct, which is to eat whenever the calories are put in front of us, and so we just gorge on them, and we end up you know, getting way too big. I think the same thing happens socially. Our natural instinct as human beings is to connect, to enjoy, get a little dopamine squirt of excitement every time we make a social connection. And now what do we have? We have the equivalent of you know, all that food on tap. We have, we have the social stuff on tap, but we just don't stop. So we just gorge and gorge and gorge. And I think we end up with a slightly superficial social experience where we have 921 friends on Facebook with whom we're interacting constantly. But when was the last time we actually spent a whole afternoon sitting with one of those friends in a cafe talking, talking about who we are and where we want to be yeah. in, in this world? And I, so I think it's so important to re- reclaim and to relearn that art of being alone. And a big part of being alone is slowing down. And I, I like the way you talked earlier about simplicity being another way of talking about slow. I do think these are – it's like a big Venn diagram. You've got the circle for slow. You've got the circle for simplicity. I think you've got the circle for – whether you call it introversion or solitude, and they all intersect in the middle in a big space. And I think solitude is a big part of uh, slow travel. It's a big part of living slow anywhere. Uh, And it's something that I I cherish and really recommend that people get back in touch with. Yeah, that's true. And on the other side of the coin of isolation is community. And I know you've spoken about the role of slow in bringing people together, not in that socially abundant quality or quantity over quality way where you have a thousand Facebook friends, but you never meaningfully engage them. There, it was really interesting, and we don't have a ton of time to dive into this. It's too bad because this community aspect of slowing down, and you mentioned it earlier in our conversation, forging deep connections deep, meaningful connections with people. You talked about this uh, more. I'll link to it in the show notes. There's uh, one of my favorite podcasts. is called The Slow Home Podcast with Brooke McGallery. And you did an interview with her recently, and you, you talked about how community is at the heart of this slow culture quake. And I love the way that you say it. You know, one of the things that you can accelerate, no matter how much of a rush you're in, is human relations. Uh, it, it was funny. It was really... Uh, it was really just... I don't know what touched me so much, but as somebody who loves social abundance, I'm so extroverted that sometimes I do need to turn it off and I do need to have that alone time. But at the same time, it's community. It's that sense of belonging, that sense of being somewhere where I'm with my right people and slowing down my life has really helped in a lot of ways. You mentioned the social cohesion that comes with eating together. What Have you noticed anything about growing food together that you eat together? Like sharing a meal is one thing, but have you noticed anything in the slow movement, like slow mm-hmm. farming, whether it's urban or rural, where people grow the food before they eat it together? Oh, very much so. And I think there are different levels here. The, the first level of, of good slow, if you like, is, is simply sitting around the table breaking bread together. It doesn't matter necessarily where the, if someone else has baked the sourdough for you, that's fine, right? You're still going to get all that good slow payoff. But if you've taken the time to bake the sourdough, then there's another layer of of love, of connection, of engagement, of meaning, of story going on there, which is irreplaceable. And then if you go, I guess, even a level deeper, if you've grown the wheat and milled your own flour or grown the the herbs that went into your uh, pasta or or whatever it is, you know, and, and, and then I think you add an extra layer of connection and meaning. And that's why more and more people around the world are, are doing just that, whether they're in big cities like New York trying to grow a few herbs on the the, 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 the terrace or what do we call it, the, um, 
you know, the windowsill for or cooking. Or on rooftops. I've seen some oh, pretty rooftops. amazing Brooklyn gardens on rooftops. Exactly. And and, and not just in, in, in the West, you're finding more and more of that in China and, and the developing world. And I think that's a big part of reconnecting with the, the cycles of nature because, of course, nature is another thing. We talk about relationships being something that no matter how much of a rush you're in, you cannot accelerate. Uh, but nature is the same. You, we try to speed up Mother Nature, but it tends to backfire on us. And certainly when it comes to growing things on a small, slow, modest scale, like on a rooftop in a, in a city center or on your, in your back garden, uh, you, you know, you're really at the mercy of Mother Nature. You can put on fertilizer and help it grow better, but you're, you can't make it grow a month earlier or sprout, you know, in the middle of winter when it's not going to. So you, you, it, that t- taps you into those deeper, slower rhythms that are unacceleratable, if you like. And I think that's also helpful. That's almost like an inoculation. It vaccinates you against the virus of hurry to be, to be moving in lockstep with deeper, slower, natural rhythms. And that's one of the things that is brought to you, uh, brought to the table by growing your own produce, growing your own vegetables, your own herbs or fruits or whatever. And then the same thing, I guess, happens when you start to cook it yourself and then you eat it together. So there are kind of three prongs, if you like, there to that slow food moment. I love how you're just talking about layers. And we could, whether you use the peeling back an onion analogy, a lot of it, I can tell slow food is still first and foremost for you uh, and how you keep going back to food. This has just been a delicious sample platter of slow. I know we haven't gone super deep on any one topic. And you allow people to, whether it's on your podcast or with your books, if people really want to go deeper, boy, you have a whole world where they can explore at their own pace, of course. Um, is there anything that we didn't talk about, though, that you would like people to know? I think that we've, I mean, as you say, we've, we've kind of skipped along from area to area, and there's, there's a lot more depth and a lot more detail for people to, to explore. Uh, I guess what, what I would want to leave people with is the idea that, that you can slow down, that often we find ourselves, or we wind ourselves up into a, place of hysteria and panic and we just feel you know i desperate to put on the brakes but i can't my my life won't allow it my boss won't allow it my spouse won't allow it my life you know but actually you can right everyone can find some way to put on the brakes to slow down a little bit and, and probably quite a lot if once you get started so it's about taking that first step and it, the first step will be different for everyone uh, depends where you are in your life if you've got family what you're interests are uh, but there's always some corner of your life where you can start to put on the brakes and then let that slow vibe move through the rest of what you do and uh, you know the, the thing to remember is that people always say well oh i'd love to slow down but i can't right you know I, mm. if i slow down i'll get left behind uh the, the life will pass me by but but that to me is the wrong way to think about it because life is actually what's happening right here and right now and if we don't slow down, then that's when life passes us by because we end up just racing through it in a blur and rushing through life instead of living it. It's when you slow down, give yourself fully to every moment, uh, do fewer things but do those things better, do them in an engaged, mindful, uh, connected uh, manner. That's when life goes from black and white to technicolor and that's when you feel like you're living life to the full uh, and it's it, it it goes against the dom- the predominant culture, which is always telling us that faster is better. But I think deep down, most of us, if not all of us, know that faster is not always better. You talked about at the start of our conversation that oftentimes it's people who know how to go slow 
which are better at going faster when they have to. And they're the ones, they get to decide when they get into the fast lane as opposed to being pushed into it. So that ability to go fast, we want to go fast at some points in time. It's really important. And having that slowness in our life really helps us with the fast. So that's that's one thing that I've taken away from your work. And uh, Carl, I just want to give you my personal thanks because in praise of slowness, other things I've read and heard from you has helped me make some pretty big changes and pretty immediate. It's rare that I read a book where I, I'll decide, okay, today I'm making a change. Uh, for instance, there's a section in your book about how you repented from speeding in your car, which mm-hmm. is, is, there's some stories in there that are pretty good, and how that's almost one universal thing that we all do fast. So that day I started changing my driving habits. I started driving much closer to the speed limit and much more often. So first, thank you for that. Um, and uh, going back to the parenting and having children, you know, because of your guidance, I'm thinking, I don't know that I'm going to do it, but I'm thinking more and more about homeschooling my two boys to avoid that environment, whether it's private or public school, that's overly rigid on time and demanding on a certain kind of mindset to make them good employees as opposed to good people or problem solvers. So I just wanted to give you my personal thanks for what you've helped me with. And I know people who are listening, you've helped them a ton as well. If they want their first step into the world of slow to be more of what you have, where can people find you online? Uh, very simple. Just uh, Carl Honore, my name, Carl Honore, C-A-R-L-H-O-N-O-R-E.com. And, or even just Google slow Carl, you'll, you'll get me. And there's so, so much stuff out there. My site has got, as you've said already, podcasts, there's audio, there's video, there are tons of links lots of blog posts it's just it's a good clearinghouse or, or starting point for jumping into this slow revolution and, and finding your own uh, place to stand in in it all right so one more thing you mentioned slow revolution i know at the end of in praise of slowness which you wrote 10 years ago you talked about are we going to move from a slow movement into a slow revolution are we there now? Do, we, do you feel like we have a slow revolution on our hands? I do think, I do think that one is coming. And, and it, it's funny. When I, when I wrote In Praise of Slowness, I, did, I really didn't know what was going to happen. I just knew that I had something I wanted to say, and I knew exactly how I wanted to say it. But I, didn't, I couldn't really even envisage how it would land or what it would, effect it would have. And I didn't know if this was just something that I was feeling or that there'd be, it would go any further. But I've just been blown away and I continue to be blown away by how far this idea of slow has gone and when you do find people in every walk of life and and as we were saying earlier whether it's Silicon Valley whether it's Wall Street whether it's uh, you know the the Prime Minister of China was in Britain recently and he said uh, he said something which just rocked a lot of people he said um, you know Chinese children need to play more right they're just too busy and you think well the rest of the world's rushing around trying to get as fast as Chinese children, but even there they're realizing that it's just too quick that kids need to put on the brakes. And I, I just think that wherever you look now, you're finding that same message coming back that s- slower is often better and that less is often more. And uh, I, I have to say that I feel more optimistic now than I did certainly 10 years ago and more optimistic than I felt three or four years ago just because th- those tectonic plates are shifting. And every time I open up my inbox, look at the internet or read a newspaper, I see another example of how somebody is saying enough, 
You know, that this, this crazy idea of speed being the natural default setting that faster is always better. It's absurd. It's preposterous. It's toxic. It doesn't work. And not only are they saying all of that, they're saying, you know what? I'm going to stand up and find a way to put on the brakes and, and, and show that slow is good and that slow works. And, um, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what the, the next five years bring because I'm feeling uber optimistic. Heck yes, man, me too. Well, I, hopefully I learned my lesson and I, I was mindful during our chat about talking a little bit slower and perhaps uh, with a lower volume level than I normally do because uh, fast and loud, at least when it comes to verbal conversation, those are two attributes that I've had a difficult time dealing with. You, of course, uh, did fantastic. So again, I just want to say I'm really grateful for coming on the show, Carl. Thanks a ton. Thank you, Joel. It's been a real, real pleasure. All right. So let me know, what's the status of your gray matter after my chat with Carl? A little bit scrambled? Blown in some way? Maybe you're already browsing carlonore.com for a heapin' helpin' of slow? As Carl mentioned, and I can verify, his website, C-A-R-L-H-O-N-O-R-E.com is a portal into just about all things slow. You know, go have a click around. Report back to Carl and me on Twitter, anywhere else, what you're doing differently as your metronome becomes a little more gentle. What Carl didn't mention in the episode is that as of January 25th, 2016, he has a new online course called How to Slow Down in a Good Way. I've checked out the landing page, looks super sweet to me. Everything I've read or seen, heard from this dude has been tremendous. I imagine how to slow down in a good way is as well. You'll find more details at joelzeslowski.com slash goodslow. That link, as well as links to all the stuff we spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, more grooviness, that's all found in the show notes at joelzeslowski.com slash sasm092. You will also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community via Patreon at joelzeslowski.com slash Patreon. If you're not already a podcast subscriber and email newsletter getter dude or dudette, maybe you want to leave a brief iTunes review for the show. All of those things are tremendous. You're going to find all of the links to that at joelzeslowski.com slash sasm092. You've noticed this Joel Zaslavsky thing. Yep, value is simple. It's gone. Uh, and now that I'm at joelzaslavsky.com, instead, you can share your thoughts about this episode, the show in general, the nature of the spreadsheet you're creating, if you are. Just hit me up directly if you like. I'm at joel at joelzaslavsky.com, at joelzaslavsky on Twitter, J-O-E-L-Z-A-S-L-O-F-S-K-Y, or wherever else we both happen to be. You may notice I'm still tweaking around the edges with SASM and J2TheZ.com. If you got something to say, you want to be heard, I am listening. Just more or less different, whatever it is, please, I would love to connect with you. So, you've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zeslowski. Now go simplify something, hug someone or get your sexy spreadsheet on.